Welcome to the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman, and I hope your weekend feels as long and as productive as a Buccaneers fourth quarter scoring drive. Hi there. Happy Friday. Happy weekend. Hope you're looking forward to a jam-packed slate of NFL football. We're going to preview the whole thing for you. Don't worry. We got all the goods. We got all the deets. But let's begin where we always do. Orchard Park, Buffalo, New York. Another zany finish in an otherwise sleepy Thursday night football game. I love it. It happened last week in New Orleans. It happens Thursday night in Buffalo. The Bills nearly lose control of a game that they had dominated throughout. A Baker Mayfield Hail Mary falls harmlessly to the end zone turf. Somebody, somebody at least touched the thing. Baker Mayfield's last throw of the game falls short. The Bills hang on to beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 24 to 18. 100% did not feel like a game that needed such a dramatic ending. I doubt the Bills are going to complain about improving to five and three. They get the weekend off, but man, I was I was thinking about you, Bills fans. That whole fourth quarter, it's almost a game where you know, you can go make yourself a snack. You don't have to be riveted by the action. And then all of a sudden, a a thriller breaks out there in the final 10 minutes. And let's let's start there. The Buccaneers struggles on offense have been well documented. It is it's part of their DNA this season. But but one drive, as I mentioned at the top of the show, really tells the story of this game. Bucks had less than 200 yards of offense entering the fourth. The Bills had roughly 400. It's 24 to 10. Buffalo really doing whatever they want in this game most of the most of the time. And even the missed opportunities don't feel like a big deal. Just that's how toothless the Buccaneers had had looked like. And what ensues is one of the sillier clutch fourth quarter touchdown drives you'll ever see in this game. The Buccaneers go 17 plays, 92 yards from their own eight, burn seven and a half minutes off the clock, which is not usually a winning strategy when you're down by 14 in the fourth. But oh man, what we saw on this drive, the Bucs get to a fourth and 10 near midfield an illegal contact flag on, on Bill's corner. Teron Johnson gives them the automatic first five felt like an eternity five, five minutes later, fourth and eight at the bills 40, 39. So the, the bucks had only gone like eight yards. Baker's sacked on fourth down completely hopeless play. Didn't have a chance from the beginning, but he's hit on the face mask as he's going down automatic first down. Bucks get to the edge of the red zone. They're knocking on the door. That finally looks like they have a chance to score. Fourth down. Bills 24-yard line. Baker finds Mike Evans in the front corner of the end zone for the touchdown. If that wasn't crazy enough, the touchdown pass caroms off the DB's helmet. Mike Evans hauls it in, cuts it to 24-16. Then the Bucks go for two because that's the smart analytic thing that the kids like to do these days. Shout out to Todd Bowles, who is definitely not a kid, for approving that decision. Two-point conversion. The ball is again batted and again caught by a Buccaneers receiver. It's a six-point game. Bills kill some time. Bills wind up punting from midfield. Hey, we've controlled these guys all night. We can, of course, burn 40 seconds, can't we? And they do, to their credit. But they let the Bucs get near midfield. 
did not think Baker Mayfield had arm strength like that. He heaves it into the end zone. And like I said at the top, Chris Godwin, I, I don't know if he lost it in the lights or if he just got turned around. Nobody on the Bills defense really seems like they're playing the ball, definitely playing their man assignments in the end zone. And I don't know how many times you're going to see a Hail Mary just doink down in the end zone with nobody touching it. It happened here and the Bills escape. I, for one, say thank you to the Bills and the Bucks for giving us a much more entertaining finish than what I saw coming. Like I said, Bill, Bills improved to five and three. Their offense looks as good as it has in weeks. We will get to that. Tampa Bay now has lost three games in a row and four of their last five. Maybe more troubling, they have failed to score 20 points in four of their last five games. Fourth quarter notwithstanding, a team that's got to find out a way to generate more offense earlier. And I think Mike Evans can speak to that because Mike Evans catches that crucial touchdown pass. When we were talking about it here, me and my wonderful production team, Mike Evans' first reaction upon catching that pass is to be absolutely pissed off. And for a second, I was like, wait, was there a flag? Is this coming back? Why is Mike so angry? And then I realized it's probably because he's Mike freaking Evans and he's barely touched the ball all night. Tampa Bay offense just not really able to generate any consistency. I do want to talk about the winners, though. Really, aside from almost letting it slip, like when you can get past that frustration, Bills fans, Keep in mind that this is about as good as we've seen the Bills look in the better part of a month. And I do think it's interesting that that happens on a night where injuries forced them to take some tight ends off the field. That was one of the storylines going in. Dawson Knox, Quentin Morris are out for this game. The rookie Dalton Kincaid is really the only tight end that played a meaningful role on offense, at least statistically. And it was a breakout game for him. He he did have, I believe, what? He had eight for 75 last week against New England. Not as many yards from the rookie, but he does get his first touchdown. Five for 65 and the touchdown on a beautiful rollout. Classic Josh Allen buying time on the run, finding Dalton Kincaid for the walk-in touchdown. But on top of that, on top of Dalton Kincaid continuing to look like a guy that you can incorporate into this offense, the Bills were able to just spread it around in a way that they haven't recently. Stephon Diggs, nine catches for 70 yards, perfectly suitable night for, for Stephon, contributed plenty, but he wasn't even a top two receiver on this Bills offense. Gabe Davis has a Gabe Davis game. Always seems like it happens in these standalone games when everybody's watching. Nine catches for 87 yards and a touchdown. Josh Allen, as you might expect, had a phenomenal night. I think at, more often than not, that goes without saying. Khalil Shakir, second-year guy, six for 92. He's the leading receiver in this entire game. It's highly encouraging for a Bills team that so often winds up in a situation where it's either Stephon Diggs is going to eat or we're going to struggle to move the ball. And that just wasn't the case on in this particular game. The Bills have their second highest yardage total, 427. They get way more guys involved. The running game is going well. Obviously, Josh Allen is a big part of that. James Cook continues to be an efficient runner. I would like to think maybe... They continue to give him the ball. Maybe these goal line touches for Latavius Murray 
aren't as necessary as the Bills seem to think they are. But I'm not going to critique offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey too much because a lot of panic in in Bills Nation, in Bills Mafia, that this offense is a problem. Maybe not so much. Maybe more 11 personnel is what the doctor ordered for the Bills. They've been running 12 personnel, and that's this Dalton Kincaid pick. That's what everybody was talking about. Oh, we have Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid. It's 11 and a half personnel. We have this, this, this skill set that nobody else can match. They've been running 12 personnel 34% of the time this year. That's 15% more than anybody else in the NFL. The injuries forced them to go back to more 11 personnel, more three receiver sets, and they kind of thrived. It's not my job to figure out snap counts or take anybody's job away, but if it looks this good, maybe don't tinker too much, even when Dawson Knox comes back. That is my hot take coming out of this game. Bill's offense looks just fine. I'm not going to judge the defense too much off of this, not because so much of, of the final drive there or drives against Tampa, but this is just a very ineffective Tampa Bay offense. They still struggle to run the ball more often than not. They did put that wonderful drive together with some miracle penalties. But again, the Bucks regularly failing to get to even 20 points. It makes you wonder. I think they're going to be a pain in the butt for most teams that they play. But if you're not able to generate more points than this on a regular basis, I don't know how you keep pace in the division, especially having just lost a game to the Atlanta Falcons. We'll see how they dig out of that. One more note, and this doesn't happen often. That's how you know how badass it was. I don't know how often you're going to spend time on a punter in a game, but shout out to Buffalo's Sam Martin for one of the better punting performances I can remember in the last couple of years. And it's honestly a big part of the reason why the second half of this game was so boring. The Buccaneers average starting field position in the second half was their own 10 yard line because Sam Martin punted four times down three of them inside the Tampa 10 and that fourth one that didn't bounced on the two-inch line and just was barely a touchback. He almost pinned the Bucks on their own goal line four times. So, again, for an offense that has really been pretty bad most of the season, they were starting in the second half. They started, they started on their own 25 to open after the Bills scored a touchdown. And from there, because of Sam Martin, they start on their own three, their own four, and their own eight and not to take credit away from the bucks, but that 92 yard touchdown drive in addition to the penalties, at least a little bit of it is Buffalo playing back, playing soft, not giving up big plays, letting the bucks drain the clock. So Sam Martin, a huge, huge piece of why the bills were in cruise control for a lot of this. Again, you'd probably prefer it wasn't as dramatic as it was. But five and three is five and three. Good on you, Buffalo. Good on you, Bucks, for making that a lot more fun than I thought. All right. Thursday night is over. Let's turn toward Sunday. As always, we start our preview episode off with a chat with my guy, NFL on Fox broadcaster Greg Olson. He's got the LA Rams and the Dallas Cowboys in week eight. I caught up with him. Check it out. Week eight. LA Rams heading to take on the Dallas Cowboys. I'm curious, we're getting to the point in the season now where you're starting to see teams for a second time and you had the, the Lions for the second time last week. You've actually, you've done a game with both of these teams before um, already this season. I'm just curious, 
when you when you visit a team for the second time, when you're diving in, are you going in with fresh eyes as if you you haven't called one of their games before, or are you looking for for what's different from from the last time you watched them play? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think that's always the balance. You know, I, I'm always asking our producer. I'm like, hey, Z, like, do we? pretend like no one's ever heard us talk about these teams. And he always reminds me, he's like, yes. He's like, if you said something that's still relevant now, these many weeks later, calling it for the second time, don't worry that you said it in week two or, you know, whatever the week was. Don't, he goes, this is a fresh audience, fresh game. Pretend like it's the first time they've ever seen these teams play. And first time they've ever seen you call their game, because you know, your first instinct is like, you got to come up with all new things. But oftentimes a lot of the main storylines from the previous time calling their game still rings true. So I think a lot of that, uh, you know, bodes well for both these teams. I think a lot of the storylines that we had them, you know, a few weeks back for each team, we had the Rams against Philly. We've had, we had the Cowboys against uh, New England out in Dallas. So, you know, it wasn't that long ago, right. We're still only in week you know, eight or whatever it is. So it's uh it's definitely a balance, but I think with both these teams, it's a lot of the same guys, the lineup's, you know, give or take remain pretty much the same, um, you know, barring an injury here and there. So it is a lot of familiar faces and a lot of the things we talked about the last time we had them are still relevant to the discussion today. A similar line of questioning on the Cowboys side of this, they're coming off their bye week you know, they beat the chargers on Monday night football. They take a week off. And so, you know, the first time in a couple of weeks, we've seen them play a game. All the talk in Dallas is, uh, can the play calling get better? Can Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott do a better job getting on the same page? Can they quote unquote, you know, fix their offense, which I, I think is at least somewhat funny because even if the offense isn't as good as what we're used to, it's, it's still not terrible by any stretch, but I'm curious from your perspective or your history playing in the league, you know, we talk so much about like, Oh, they gotta, they gotta get in the office and and tweak some things during the bye week How much can an NFL team really tweak during that week off and and what they can change how do they go about doing it yeah it's so true you know you hear people talk about that all the time like hey we'll get to the bye week and, and everyone acts like they're going to reinvent themselves and and, right. and that's typically not the case traditionally the big advantages of the bye week are for the players you can hopefully get some guys healthy you can get some guys recovered you know guys that are playing banged up get them closer to 100 percent. maybe get some guys that aren't playing back on the field so that's first Secondly, as far as the coaches are concerned, it's less about new plays, new system, new philosophy, and it's more let's study ourselves. When when a defense is so, let's say I'm, I'm Mike McCarthy and I'm the I'm the Cowboys offense. I want to act like all right. I'm a defensive coordinator preparing to play me. What are our tendencies on first and second down? What are our third down tendencies? Let's take a deeper dive into where we're having troubles with the red zone, right? So it's almost like let's study ourselves for a week because I don't have to worry about an opponent. And let's see, are we giving anything away? Are we becoming predictable? Are there things that we could do that are minor tweaks within our system to put our players in better position to have success, put our players in position, you know, to make bigger plays or finish in the red zone or cut down on penalties or, you know, whatever it is. So it's typically more of like a self-assessment week. Um, I, I don't, you know, traditionally speaking, there's not like this complete revamping of any particular scheme style plays they don't invent a new offense all of a sudden a team that's traditionally under center all of a sudden just doesn't just say oh, we're going to go completely out of shotgun or you know we're a five wide team now all of a sudden we're going to play with three tight ends it's typically not anything rash as far as let's identify the key things that sometimes during the course of game planning fall through the cracks 
because we're so worried about our next opponent, our next opponent. The bye week just allows you to take a deep breath. Let's look at ourselves. Let's get some bodies back and let's get ready for the long run now that the rest of the season brings. There's two things that stand out to me and they kind of counteract each other, honestly, but two things that, that stand out with the Cowboys offense you know, there's a lot of talk about, are you getting C.D. Lamb involved enough? Sure enough, you know, they target him seven times against the Chargers. He has seven catches for 100-plus yards. On the other side of that, though, as well, basically nobody else in the Cowboys' passing offense is getting involved on a consistent enough basis, in my opinion, at least. Uh, that, that's anecdotal just from me watching their games. But how do you how do you balance those two things of having a superstar receiver in CD Lamb, making sure that he is getting the targets that he needs, but at the same time, whether it's Brandon Cooks, whether it's Jake Ferguson, Michael Gallup, whoever you want to talk about, uh, it sure seems like some of those guys need to be be picking up the slack as well. Yeah, and and I think you 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 kind of laid it out perfectly. I think it's always a balance, right? I think anytime you have a premier player, in this case, it's one of your wide receivers, it could be a running back, a tight end, whoever it is, but anytime you have a premier player offensively. There is the pressure in the sense of, hey, we have one of the best players at their position in the league. Let's make sure we're giving them all the chances, all the opportunity to impact the game. But at the same time, as a play caller, as the person putting the system together, you don't want to be so one-dimensional. You don't want the, the, the entire bulk of the offense to rest on the shoulders of any one particular guy. I mean, for multiple reasons. God forbid that player has to miss a game. God forbid they get hurt mid-game and the entire system is predicated on their, on their you know, presence on the field. But also because it's just a lot easier, you know, very common sense, it's just a lot easier for the defenses to take one guy away and really set your offense back. So I think that's what Mike McCarthy and this Dallas offense is still trying to figure out. Hey, listen, we know CeeDee Lamb is, you know, one of the best. You know, it's funny because for a slot receiver, he's their number one, which is not traditionally what we see. He does so much of his damage from inside as, in, uh, you know, as opposed to, a you know, outside number one receiver. And he's so efficient there and he's so good. How do they get Gallup going? How do they get Brandon Cooks going? How do they get some production out of the young tight ends? You know, continue to get the ball in the hands of Tony Pollard, not just as a runner, but in the passing game. And I, and I think, you know, I would bet that would be a big part of their study in the offseason is saying, okay, what, I mean, in the, in the bye week, what are, where are we missing? Where are elements of this offense that we've had in years past that we were able to generate more explosive plays? We were able to spread the ball around. We were able to give Dak Prescott answers in the passing game that if a team does take away cd lamb in the slot or if they do double team him on third down we have other answers and we have other places to go with the ball so i think every team that has a true number one target has that kind of fine balance but um i i think it's fair i think dallas is still trying to kind of see what that looks like on the flip side i i think this is it's a particularly fun matchup for us to be talking about that for the cowboys because it just always seems like the la rams are so good at knowing who their guys are and targeting them. I know, I mean, Cooper Cup finishes with two catches last week, but Puka Nakua is right there to pick up the slack. And that, I mean, going all the way back to his Calvin Johnson days, Matthew Stafford is so good at getting the ball to to the good players in his offense. What have you seen from him in that regard? Just, I mean, one of those two dudes is going to have a big day seemingly every week if Matthew Stafford's the quarterback. Yeah, I think where Stafford is so good is, you know, I think sometimes people have a negative connotation. You know, he's a, when they call him, he's a first read quarterback, right? He, he's going to get on his first read, predetermine it before the snap. And that guy's going to get the ball at a high percentage of the time. And I, I, I think it's actually a, a credit to Matthew because it's his ability to, to process the look pre-snap. 
he's able to take in the picture before he snaps the ball and say, okay, it's man, it's zone. It's single high, it's too high. Here's where the voids are in the zone. Here's where my matchup is in man. He can process all that quickly before the snap. So when he does hit the top of his, of his, you know, of his, of his drop, the ball is out. When he's on time, when that ball comes out first read, and obviously a lot of the times it's been Cooper Cup over the years and now this year with Puka Nakua, he is as efficient and he is as productive a quarterback as there is in the league. When teams take that away, when the protection breaks down and now he's got to hold the ball and he's got to go through, that's where the offense kind of spirals. And, and I don't think that's necessarily an indictment on Matthew as much as it is credit to him. He knows he has two premier weapons this year. He's had Cooper Cup for, you know, for years, but now he's got a second weapon again for the first time, maybe since, you know, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl run. And now he's able to really take a look at the defense. And say, okay. Where's my matchup? It all obviously starts with those two guys and then piece it together post snap. And I think when they're at their best, that's what they do. Last week, Cooper Cup kind of struggled to get involved. He had a couple early drops. He wasn't as open on some of the choices. And Matthew started making a decision. Hey, it's man coverage. I'm going to start working Puka Nakua. That's the matchup I want. And as he's done all year, the kid just continues to deliver. Uh, and it's it's remarkable both zone and man for a young kid who's able to get himself open and work, um, you know, only eight games into his NFL career. He's, he's wise beyond his years. And, and obviously Stafford has a lot of trust in him. I don't, I don't want to oversell it. Like I know the Rams, the record doesn't reflect it. And, and the numbers haven't always been pretty, but like just in terms of watching football, like there are there any more fun combinations right now than some of the throws Stafford is trusting Puka Nakua with and some of the catches that he's making on those throws? A couple of the catches he made last week were off the charts. Uh, I think one of them he might have been out of – I think one of them they might have ruled that he was out of bounds. The other one, though, I don't know how he got his feet down. I mean, he he has made some incredible catches, and I think the biggest growth that stands out to me is he started the year – really good getting open in zone coverage, right? When, when teams wanted to bracket and teams wanted to kind of shell the defense, he just had a great feel for tempo and spacing and being friendly to the quarterback. Obviously Cooper cup missed the first couple of weeks of the year. And he was, he, you know, his numbers jumped off the page, but now as teams have changed it up and said, all right, we're going to match a man. We're going to get up in his face and press him. We're going to change leverages and coverage. He hasn't really skipped a beat. And I think a lot of people thought when Cooper cup came back and defense is kind of adjusted, to, to his play style that his production was going to go down and, and it inevitably will. I mean, he was at a historic clip through the first you know handful of weeks, but he's actually has more target share and catches than Cooper cup does since Cooper cups come back. So it hasn't taken maybe as big of a bite out of the apple as people thought. I mean, obviously Cooper cups going to get his looks and he's going to get his targets deservingly. So, but Pukunaku is right there. I think Matthew Stafford at this point, trusts them both as his one a and one B and, when Stafford has multiple options, he's as talented a pure passer as we have in the entire league. If they can protect him and they can continue to stay stay efficient and not make him chase points from behind, he's pretty good. It's one of the most fun offenses in the NFL right now, just in terms of some of the stuff they're willing to try. Uh, like I said, doesn't always reflect in the record, but just a very fun watch. One more for you. No disrespect to the Cowboys defense. I just I feel like they're one of the most they're one of the most impressive and visible units in the league. I feel like viewers know exactly what to expect from them. On the flip side, though, I don't know how many football fans could name a Rams defender who's not Aaron Donald. 
Uh, but and and again, this isn't maybe this isn't like a fire breathing defense, but has not been a bad defense for most of the season. I'm curious what you see from those guys that's leading to that result. Yeah, it, I think you're spot on. And, and we 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 had a funny line when we we had their game against the Eagles. God, it all blurs. However many weeks ago it was now. And uh, one of the coaches kind of said, you know, it's it's Aaron Donald and a bunch of guys you've never heard of. And he didn't mean it in, as a knock. He meant it as a credit. I mean, they have far exceeded expectations especially considering you know how they played last year and kind of the, the season they had really on both sides of the ball but there you know you got to give Raheem Morris a lot of credit he has done a great job kind of taking a newfound group you know some guys some veterans that from other places some guys internally that have you know young draft picks that are starting to get their time and they've exceeded expectations I, I think they've more than held up their end of the bargain you know relative to where people thought and we saw them hang in there as long as they could with the Eagles and, and they went toe to toe with the Eagles for, you know, call it three quarters. And then in the, in the fourth quarter towards the end of the second half, it kind of, the Eagles just overwhelmed them and they just couldn't get off the field and, and they kind of took it to them, but they, they're going to come out. They're going to play hard. They're going to play fast. Obviously Aaron Donald's one of the best to ever do it. Ernest Jones at middle linebacker is kind of their, you know, now stable figure in the middle. He calls the defense. He's their green dot um, fuller on the back end. So they still have a mix of some veterans that have done it for a couple of years at least, but um, yeah, it's a lot of guys that are not household names with the exception of Aaron and uh, they play hard and they're going to come out and compete with everything they got. A little bit of a, didn't even think of this, a, a homecoming for Matthew Stafford heading back to Dallas, trying to get a win against the Cowboys. Greg, hope it's a fun one, man. As always, I appreciate the time. All right. You got it. Thanks guys. Rams Cowboys, just one of our featured matchups for week eight for the next. I want to take it out to the West coast where the Cincinnati Bengals are traveling to face the San Francisco 49ers and the team that's reeling, not the one we would have expected. Yes, it's the 49ers coming off or dealing with, I should say, a two-game losing streak. The Bengals winning heading into their bye week. My, 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 how the turntables. Who would have thought these roles would be a little bit reversed as the 49ers look for an answer to stop this rare losing streak. Now, the headline for this game very, very obvious Brock Purdy making it easy on us. Like we talked about earlier in the week, he's in concussion protocol. He knocked his head in the loss to Minnesota on Monday night, doing a quarterback sneak. The big headline here is going to be whether or not he can play. If he doesn't, it looks like it would be Sam Darnold. That would be tasked with helping San Francisco get out of this skid. Darnold's only thrown one pass so far as a 49er. It was in the fourth quarter of that blowout win against Dallas a couple weeks ago. 21 and 34 as a starter, but as we talked about on the previous show, four and two for Carolina last year, I thought played pretty damn well in not a great situation for the Panthers. If he starts, you couldn't ask for a better situation for your backup quarterback. Obviously, even if Trent Williams misses this game, and even if you don't have Debo Samuel, there's so much talent on that 49ers offense. Of course, as soon as I put all of these notes together, Brock Purdy returns to practice for the 49ers. He was limited on Thursday, saw the video of him running around, throwing the ball. No idea what it means. That is an incredibly quick turnaround. Like I said on Thursday, no player that's gone into concussion protocol has played the week that that happened. Typically, it's at least a week waiting time for a guy to get out of the protocol and get back on the field. If Brock Purdy played just six days after the Minnesota game, that would be Awfully impressive. Hoping for the best for him. We'll we'll see what happens. As of right now, 
I lean toward thinking it'll be Sam Darnold, but you can't rule anything out. Having said all of that, the the sneaky storyline here for me, I get it. Quarterback is quarterback. That is going to be a big deal. The effectiveness of Sam Darnold if he plays or how well Brock Purdy plays if he's available, that is the biggest story. But the sneaky thing I'm watching here, don't let it distract you from what is going on on the other side of the ball. Everybody got really, really excited, myself included, when the Cincinnati Bengals went to Arizona and they put up 380 yards and 34 points against Arizona. But they very quietly followed that up with an awful day against Seattle. Yes, they won the game because their defense was nails in the red zone against Seattle. The offense put up 214 yards in that win. Not exactly a banger of a performance. Cincinnati's only topped 350 yards once this season. They've only even hit 300 yards twice. Of course, a big part of that is because Joe Burrow's dealing with a calf injury. This is probably as close to healthy as he's going to get in the confines of the season. He was trending in the right direction. Then they get a bye week. Now it's time to show how far you've come because this offense, with the one exception of the win in Arizona, this offense hasn't been anything to get excited about. And hey, All of a sudden, the San Francisco 49ers looking mortal on the defensive side of the ball. They gave up 452 yards to Minnesota. Kirk Cousins balled out against those guys. We went over the stats on Tuesday morning, 9 of 12 on third down, 378 passing yards. Clearly, there are favorable matchups to be had if your quarterback can stay on his feet. That was the big thing for Cousins. He wasn't sacked in that game. Can Cincinnati do that? Bengals have only allowed 14 sacks this year. That's that's a perfectly fine number, but per pro football focus, they're a bottom 10 pass blocking unit. They have had struggles with that. Joe's had struggle having time, getting away from pressure. When the calf has been compromised, it's even bigger of a problem. Hopefully he's healthy enough to offset that because that's, that's going to be the big thing for me. If the Bengals can go out and look remotely like what we're used to against the 49ers, That is a big, big storyline. This is a very meaningful litmus test of whether or not the Bengals have truly found their footing or if this is an offense that's still going to need a heck of a lot of help from its defense. That is why my matchup to watch in this game, Nick Bosa against Orlando Brown Jr. You're probably sitting there thinking, Dave, Nick Bosa predominantly plays left end. Orlando Brown predominantly plays left tackle. That's not actually a matchup. You're not wrong. Nick Bosa is predominantly a left end, but in the modern NFL, when you have a badass pass rusher, you move him around to the favorable matchups. Nick Bosa, 127 snaps at left end this season, 111 at right end. So it is double the snap count, but clearly Steve Wilkes, the Niners defensive coordinator, is comfortable moving Bosa to the other side if he thinks it's going to benefit him. And this might be a week to do that. Orlando Brown, Not having an awful season, only allowed one sack on the year, but he is dealing with a groin injury that's had him limited at practice. We know Orlando Brown can struggle with speed to the corner. That is, I think, a big part of the reason why the Kansas City Chiefs opted opted not to re-sign him. He's got a 69.2 pass block grade from PFF. That's in the 50s among offensive tackles. And though he's only got the one sack allowed, five quarterback hits on the year and 14 pressures just typically a few more than you'd prefer to see from a franchise type of left tackle, which is what the Bengals were hoping Orlando Brown would be. Bosa famously only has two and a half sacks so far this season. 
He's third in the league in pressures. He's got 22 again, despite not having a training camp. I think he's going to get better and better as the season goes along. This is a big opportunity for him to remind people. Yes, I am still the reigning NFL defensive player of the year. Injuries, always a big part of it. We covered the Brock Purdy situation. Debo Samuel's going to miss this game with his shoulder injury. Trent Williams has not practiced as of Thursday. Something to keep an eye on. Just an offensive lineman, I get it, but I don't know how many guys affect a team's fortunes the way Trent Williams does, in my opinion, even at his advanced age, still one of the best tackles in pro football. As for the Bengals, looking about as healthy as you could expect from a team coming off of a bye week, Orlando Brown, really the only major, major guy dealing with an injury limited by that groin. We'll see how it goes. Healthy as you could expect for a Bengals team with a big, big measuring stick opportunity in the Bay. Can't wait to see it. Let's switch gears. The complete opposite coast, the return leg of Eagles commanders goes down to the Washington, D.C. area. I sat down with my guy, NFL on Fox broadcaster Chris Myers, to get into Eagles Commanders 2.0. Check it out. All right, Chris, you know, one of my favorite fun things about a divisional rivalry is, you know, they they can sometimes happen in these two or three or four week windows. You know, it it wasn't all that long ago or the, it feels like it was uh, that Philadelphia outlasted Washington in overtime. And the calendar says it was a month. It feels like a lifetime and we're already doing it all over again. So I'm curious with with this many more games to play and so many new narratives What's what's your impression of how things have have kind of changed on both sides of this matchup for the Eagles and the Commanders? Well, I do go back even though last year when the Eagles were rolling and it was in prime time and Washington just ran the ball down their throats and had them stymied and and beat them. I I don't see that happening again, given the way the Eagles have improved their run defense. It's, It's really been outstanding. I would say that, you know, history from calling games and watching them and you hit on a division rivalry anything goes no matter who's playing well or who's the favorite and and oftentimes it's the downtrodden team you know the underdog the, the team like Washington uh that this is their Super Bowl you know we're not only is at the top of the division uh, we're, we're fighting these guys the Eagles but they're the defending NFC champion so it's 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 all in on that but do they have the talent level can they play to the level that the Eagles have even when the Eagles who by the way and even in their own opinion they haven't played some, their best football yet they've been able to win you know all but one one game um and, and even that was you know they again they, some close games but they came through when, when they had to so I, I think it'll be a better game it's not a cakewalk for the Eagles and they're not they're not taking it that way and I think Nick Sirianni deserves a lot of credit as, as a head coach and motivator because he knows his team. It's funny, he even said this week, and he was honest about it. You know how you know how these players, coaches say, we never listen to the outside noise, right? We don't want to, you know. They're usually well, lying in my experience. <laughs> yes, there you go. They Somebody here, at, well, they use it to their advantage, and Sirianni admitted that. He said, look, I heard that we were kind of the underdogs against the Eagles, I mean, against the Dolphins, and we're the Eagles, and we're, so I used that. I told my guys about that, and even though we, you know, the outside noise, we don't listen, I wanted to make sure they heard that, so that they had, they came in there, with, with an edge and an attitude and, and they played a very impressive game against a very good, you know, Miami offensive team, even with some injuries in their, in their secondary. So relating that to this, I'm sure he's going to bring up the, the past as you did the Washington and the history there. And these guys are desperate and we're, you know, he, he, you know, he tried to keep that one game at a, at a, at a time mentality, but that's what we should watch for early when you see this. Cause I always look for, you know, that, uh, that underdog intensity when a game starts, are they hammering harder? Are they, are they flying around? 
that that sometimes will offset uh you know the favorite coming into the game especially in a in a division game i i want to get i do want to get to the washington side of this because i think it's interesting where they are especially with the trade deadline coming up after this game and we can get to that but you touch on something that's really interesting which is look the eagles are six and one and i agree with you to this point in the season, it doesn't feel like they've played their best football at all. But I wonder if it gets to a point where the Eagles themselves almost feel like underdogs because the entire NFL world kind of seems like it seems like we're on their case. You know, people want to ban the brotherly <laughs> shove. People are saying, oh, you don't look as good as you did last year. Like, do we get to a point where maybe even if the Eagles aren't playing their best football, like, are we not giving them enough credit? Yeah, in a, in a strange way, based on what you just said, I've sensed that too. The years saw, oh, the Niners are the, really the team to beat, even though the Eagles are the defending team. Then there was a moment where, and I was guilty, the Lions look like they're right up there in, in terms of the NFC, right? Because the, the, the Chiefs obviously are owning the AFC in terms of that, that top spot. But remember, this isn't college football. The polls during the year don't matter. It's how you're playing, what you do in your division, what you do overall to get home field, to get into the, the playoffs. And the Eagles have a pretty good gauge on on, on that. And uh, I, by the way, the, the the brotherly shove thing is funny. And the idea to ban that, I, I, you know, I talked to somebody who's close with the Players Association and health and safety. I know they looked into it. There really wasn't any more of a chance of injury in that in, in doing that as they talk about banning it. So let's rule that out for now, unless they, the league proves that and give them credit for looking into it. But I, I think other teams need to stop it. And one of the reasons it works is it's their play. They know the snap count, but also not everybody has a Jalen Hurts. There's big, strong quarterbacks, but but Hurts is well-documented, not only strong, but tough. And there's, there's a difference. And he's, he generates great strength, lower legs, strong legs. So that, along with, you know, the, the push and the leverage and, and the fact that they know the snap count is a real advantage. So you shouldn't try to ban that. In fact, I, I'm fascinated watching that. I think you're going to see him do it more. And they have tried it on, you know, instead of fourth and one, even when they need two yards on third down or whatever. I, I want to see somebody stop it. I want to see how some defenses, and there's a lot of great defensive minds and players out there. Now, the Washington does have a very good uh, defensive line in, in that regard. So you might you might see that Sunday. Uh, but getting back to the to the bigger picture. Yeah, the Eagles, I, I think, look, when you're, you get on top and, and Nick Sirianni, he's the kind of coach. I love sitting in production meetings with him because he talks. You walk out there and go, man, I want to play for that guy because he's got my back. If he knows I'm, I'm trying hard, he's got. But you watch him. It's got that bravado at the sideline. He's like a player yelling and pointing. He's almost, you know, if you're not on his side, he's almost annoying. You know, it's almost like, all right, put this, you know, let's shut this guy up. So maybe there's a little <laughs> bit of that, a little bit of ego envy, if uh, green envy, if we can, if we can call it that. While we're not giving enough, but respect. It matters most, you know, at the end of the year and how they're playing and how they situate themselves to do that. And if I can just add on to that, give the organization credit when they need something, they go out and get it. I mean, just picking up uh, Bayer, the safety from Tennessee this week, you know, two-time all pro, not as sharp as he was in his prime, but an experienced guy that can help an injured secondary. They spotted that right away with some of the injuries. Uh, then went out and got him. They've done that in these last few years. That's allowed them to, to kind of stay on top. So that along with the coaching, uh, I, I think is is a credit to their success. And again, maybe that's why people would like to see somebody uh, in, instead of them, uh, including Cowboy fans. <laughs> I, I, I get a lot of grief. Uh, you know, that's that's my that's where I came up. That's the team that I've spent the most amount of time around. But look, um, 
being, you know, running a team well is running a team well. I don't know what else you're supposed to say. Yeah, um, yeah. and coaching well and, and knowing your personnel, right? You know, yeah. That's where the Cowboys always, you know, I always expect them. And it's not just because of their reputation over the years. And somehow they seem to get out coached or outmaneuvered in some situation, despite the talent and how they match up. But they do, uh, the Eagles, they have some great games, those two. And, and those games can go either way, just like you're talking about it in a division, uh, no matter who's on top in the standings. We will have a Dallas-Philly game coming up the week after this to get excited about. But yeah. for the time being, I do, and I'm 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 fascinated by that that storyline. And I love hearing that about Nick Sirianni. By the way, that I I think you're. I was thinking about this earlier today. Is like typically we, we say this with players where it's like, yeah, he's a jerk, but he's our jerk, and like that's right. that's kind of how I feel about Nick Sirianni. Where if he's your coach, you probably love him to death, but. Uh, maybe I, I could imagine why rival fan bases might be tired of of, of hearing him or seeing him on yeah, the side. Watching, yeah, watching him jump up and down and wave and point. And we just had, you know, I called the uh, on Fox the uh, the uh, Falcons and the Buccaneers and Jesse Bates, the uh, new safety with Atlanta, came over from Cincinnati. Is very improved defense, but he said that exact same thing about Baker Mayfield. He said, "Well, we asked him, what do you think?" He goes, "Oh, Baker's a kind of guy. Yeah, if he's on your side, you love him." because of the, you know, trash on the, but if, if you're against him, you hate him, you know, and you want to beat him, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of a thing. So I can see that, that transition because that's three, I acts like that in terms of a player as a, as a head coach. So that could be part of the reason. This is, I, I love, I love talking to y'all that are on the broadcast teams that get to go, you know, hunker down with these teams ahead of these matchups. And on the flip side of this, I mentioned it. I'm really curious about where the commanders are right now. You know, last time they played this game, they lose in overtime. They fall to two and two. And uh, we lost to the Eagles, but it kind of felt like a moral victory. Like, man, this team is really surprising. And it just really hasn't been their month in the time since. And like I said, I think, you know, the trade deadline is looming. There's going to be a lot of rumors about guys like Montez Sweat and Chase Young potentially getting dealt. I think there's a lot of speculation about Ron Rivera and what his long-term future might look like. So I'm curious as a broadcaster, when you, you know, you get to the, the hotel and sit down with these guys, what's, what's your approach there? And, and what do you think the mood might be for a team that's in this situation? Yeah, and it's a good question because when we call the game, you know, you have pregame shows and at Fox, we have good people who are on top of, is a job in jeopardy? Is there a hot trade? You know, here with what, what you just mentioned. So we, we try to mostly focus on the game and the matchups, but but part of that is the mood and the vibe. And Ron Rivera is very good about that and dealing with us when we sit down with those. And I'll liken it, uh, you know, Dave, to when Carolina had a new owner and David Tepper coming in and Rivera was the coach at first. It was, hey, we'll give it a ride. We'll see. And then all of a sudden, well, I want my own guy here. I'd like you to play this kind of defense there. And then, of course, he's 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 out of a job. So Rivera gets a chance in Washington. And this in his fourth year, a lot of different change at quarterback and at coordinators. And and they just haven't, I don't, I don't know, off the top of my head, I'm trying to look. I don't think they've had a winning record. I know they went in the playoffs that one year. Uh, but but so how many how much time do you get and what's your plan and with new ownership there uh, and and the effectiveness of what the Eagles and Cowboys are doing uh, you know I wouldn't be surprised whether that's fair or not if Washington didn't make the playoffs uh, that there would be some some change uh, and I'll in defensive run at the moment. Uh, they've invested in their defensive line, a lot of number one picks. They have to take over a game. Uh, that 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 loss to the Giants, no disrespect, with a backup quarterback and their injury, it was an, it was an embarrassment for Washington with a chance to stay in contention. 
Uh, Ron is Rivera selling to his team, hey, it's three and four, and, and we should, what he's hanging on to, at least when I've heard him talk, again, we'll meet with him again, but we, we found our quarterback in Sam Howell. That's what he, and, and that's great. Uh, not everybody's convinced, but uh, he certainly is giving his best shot. But, but the guy's got to be protected. I mean, he's been sacked at an incredible rate. So you, you may not have him long if you don't take care of him. And you're just in a, in a, in a plan of three and a half, you know, four C, you should, you should be a little better off. Now, again, are they capable? Uh, the defense can be dominant. When they were effective before, they really pounded the ball, ran it well, and it made it easier on their quarterback. I don't know if they if they have the personnel, the talent to, uh, to do that. So we'll we'll approach it in a number of ways. Uh, I can't ask a guy about his job security because they always say, well, I don't control that. You know, it's about wins and losses. But I think even Ron Rivera knows at three and four, uh, you know, another 500 season and missing the playoffs, even with a young developing quarterback, isn't going to be good enough. You took my next question right out of my mouth a moment ago, which is look, you've been you've been doing this for a long time. You've seen a lot of NFL football. I think I know the answer based on the pace that Sam Howell is currently on. I mean, I remember maybe David Carr back for Houston back in the day. I mean, he's on pace to be sacked 97 times this season. I mean, as pr- right. as, as promising as he might look at times, is this a sustainable model for an entire season? Yeah, no, not if a guy's going to get beat. And you're right about Carr. I think when I was doing some of the early prep, uh, that was the last time we saw a quarterback getting beat up that badly. And you saw what happened uh, to his career. So I think it's 40 sacks in the first seven games. I, uh, and how to his credit, he's you know, he's toughing it out. He's trying to make plays. I mean, they've got some receivers. And I thought, you know, the offensive line was good enough to protect him. So maybe – you know, it has to be in the offensive coordinator about your schemes and the plays you're calling. There's ways to, we've seen this with other teams, get the ball out quicker, roll out with your quarterback. He's athletic, do some things so that, you know, your quarterback is not in, in that situation. So, uh, no, that that that's not sustainable. And I think as good as the Eagles defense is and their defensive line, um, I think you'll see Washington do a little better job of protecting the quarterback. How effective it is to run an offense, I don't know. But that's got to be their first step if they hope to have any chance the rest of the season. And that's the other element of this, too. Obviously, the Eagles defensive line off to a phenomenal start once again this season. You mentioned the, the Kevin Byard trade. I, I always, you know, it's it's probably it's probably not fair to to expect too much from a guy that gets into the building on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, but this Eagles defense looking really, really impressive against Miami. And that was without Bayard. That's with a lot of injuries in the secondary. What, what have you seen from them particularly this last week, but even in the last couple of weeks, that's got them trending in the right direction. Yeah. Ever since Gardner Johnson was, had left, they were trying to replace uh, that safety area and, and they, then they had injuries there. So the a couple of rookies that they threw in uh, to fill in, I, I thought held up well against Miami overall. I mean, that was a high flying offense that they did a pretty good number on uh, to keep them in the, in the game. I think Bayard, you'll, you'll see him in the game. I, I know the defensive coordinator, Sean Desai uh, of Philadelphia said right away that, uh, you know, uh, even though he'll be new to our system, he's an experienced guy. And the, and I've actually, he's a guy we've covered through the years. Byard's a very smart, uh, understanding defensive team player. So I, I think he'll adjust to whatever they need him to do. And he may not play the entire game, but his experience, along with those rookies who are getting valuable playing experience for the Eagles in the secondary, 
at the safety spots. I, I think that's going to be a win uh, for, for the Eagles uh, down the road. And then, then, then they're solid at, at, at corner as well with, with Bradbury and Slay. So uh, this is the kind of thing, though, that sends the right message. And we've seen this in baseball day where, you know, when a trade is made, it's not like, oh, we're not good enough for this. Like, hey, this, we, this they're telling us they want to win now. They're bringing in somebody that's going to help all of us do better. And we're going to get that playoff money or Super Bowl run or postseason run. That's it. And the Eagles have that vibe from the front office ownership and, and down to the head coach. I think I've been around the Eagles in detail for about 10 years, and it, it feels like they operate that way way more often than not. One more thing I want to get your thoughts on before we get you out of here. And we kind of touched on this with the whole idea of like, are we giving the Eagles enough credit? I'm, nobody in Philadelphia is going to say that it's good that Jalen Hurts has turned the ball over this much. Obviously, it hasn't gotten in the way of them winning football games. How do you how do you navigate that line? Where I mean, clearly, you would prefer the quarterback to to clean up the turnover issues, but at the same time, this is a very very good football team. Yeah, no, two parts to that. One, I I think yes, absolutely that that can't continue because when you run into really good teams in close games, and well, like we saw in the Super Bowl, that that key fumble, he did a lot of great things, but that 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 was a turning point, and I I think a, part of the reason the Chiefs won the game. And, and I'm a little surprised just because I, when you sit with Jalen Hurts, you know, he's he, he's very much I don't want to call him a perfectionist, but he is somebody who who is analytical of how to do things better and, and where he could have done something better and what not to do. Uh, and he's got the coaching behind him as, as well. And maybe a little that is, is the new offensive uh, coordinator uh, in that. But, but I think part of that, the other part of that is I, I really think he's progressing and maybe he's like, Oh, Hey, I'm already there for an NFL quarterback, but he, uh, I hear there's some defensive coaches or players that, that he's becoming a better pocket passer thrower, whatever. I, and I look, he's a very, I think he's the kind of quarterback that loves to be on the run and move. And, and that, that, makes his game he likes to run a little and then his real job he has to he has to run the offense and throw the ball in, in key spots and, and that's well uh evidenced by the connection with aj brown i mean the guy's a historical run of five straight games of 125 receiving yards or more so the, the, if that happens again it's calvin johnson's the only one who's done that so that'll be a record if if they're able to continue that this week so to me so part of that push is is jalen not forcing it but trying to show people hey I, I, if i have to throw and and be that 300-yard passing guy or whatever in that kind of a game, I can do that. He's working on that, and, and they're working on that with him. And I think sometimes, because he has, doesn't have as much experience in that area as running around with the ball or, or pushing forward for a first down, maybe that's where some mistakes are coming. That's just my uh, naked eye view and some of the people that I've, that I've talked to. And I think ultimately that'll be a good thing, because if the Eagles need to dial that back a little to cut back on turnovers, they can. But if they need to go the other way, they've seen what he can or can't do in terms of certain types of throws. The other part of that, you you mentioned it at the top. Turnovers were what sank the Eagles in their loss to Washington last year. Definitely something to keep an eye on. It's going to be a fun one. Philadelphia heading down the highway to Washington this weekend. Chris Myers will be there for all of it. Really appreciate the time, my friend. Good luck with the call. Thank you so much. Nope. Anytime, Dave. I think that they're going to get Washington's best shot. Uh, but but will it will it be enough uh, for the home team underdog? Uh, we'll see. But yeah, the Eagles are definitely the superpower in the NFC still as we stand at this point. Let's continue this trend of zigzagging back and forth across the country. Why not? Because our last big preview for week eight takes us up to the Pacific Northwest. The Cleveland Browns heading up to Lumen Field to face the Seattle Seahawks. The headline here is going to be obvious. Maybe you're tired of hearing about it, but that's what happens with franchise quarterbacks. 
what the hell's going on with Deshaun Watson? We're not going to get an answer to that on Sunday because he's not going to play. We went over this all earlier in the week, so we don't need to rehash it a ton, but Deshaun Watson is going to miss this game starting at quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. He played just 12 snaps last week, takes a big hit, evaluated for a concussion. The Browns pull him. They say they're protecting their quarterback, but they're going to start him against Seattle. Within two, three days of that announcement, he's not going to play against Seattle. It's going to be P.J. Walker instead. Weird, weird situation. We'll see where it goes. We'll see how long until Deshaun Watson can be back playing through that rotator cuff injury. It does detract from the actual, very interesting storyline from this game. It's two actual quarterbacks have to play in this game. And right now, neither one of them is playing as well as you would prefer. Now, what we're not going to do is slander Geno Smith. Don't worry, 12s. Geno Smith is a very, very good quarterback. And he's had a very, very good season. I don't think there's a drop-off when you talk about what we've seen from Geno Smith as opposed to his Pro Bowl last season. Some of the throws this guy makes, the the needles that he's willing to thread, and the confidence in which he plays, he's one of my favorite quarterbacks in the league. But when you play confidently, when you're willing to take risks, it can bite you. Geno Smith threw one interception in his first month of the season. He threw three in his last two games. Now, again, this is always the double-edged sword with good quarterbacks. You're willing to take risks. You're willing to push the ball downfield. Pass he threw to Noah Fant last week against Arizona. The, the audacity, Gino, to even try that, let alone complete it. Phenomenal stuff. Pro Football Focus credited him with five big-time throws in the last two games. So typically, high degree of difficulty throws that usually go 20-plus yards down the field. Five of those in the last two games. Love the in, the confidence to just just try stuff. That's what Geno Smith does. It's just that it's been recently. Four turnover-worthy throws in the last two games. He only had five in the first month. So you are seeing an uptick, whether it's bad decision-making, bad execution. Regardless, you're seeing an uptick in plays that can come back to bite you, and it has. Three interceptions in the last two games. It matters more this week because this is a very nasty Browns defense. This is a defense that will take advantage of miscues that will get the interception off the, the tipped pass or, or the tight window throw, what have you. So I think Geno Smith is very good. I feel good about him as the Seahawks quarterback, but it's something to watch after the last two weeks for Seattle. Meanwhile, for the Browns, PJ Walker is going to be hoping to continue this upward trajectory. He, didn't start against Indy, but ironically played a hell of a lot better in relief against the Colts in that topsy-turvy game than he did getting the huge upset as the starter against San Francisco. That's the win everybody's going to remember, but some brutal decision-making at times in that game against San Francisco. Talk about turnover-worthy throws. Had five of those in the San Francisco game alone. Cut it down to two against Indianapolis. Just like Geno, three interceptions in his last two appearances. It, it's got to get at least a little bit better. P.J. Walker completing right around 50% of his passes. And I get it. This is the backup. You're not expecting amazing play, but you do have to play well enough to give your team a chance, particularly playing in a very, very loud environment in Seattle. Make sure you're not doing too much. Make sure you're not forcing the ball. Just make good, smart decisions. Keep in mind, the Seattle pass rush might be a little bit improved. Frank Clark is back in Seattle, was released by Denver. He's back with his former team. But that's that's what I'm watching here. I really, 
even knowing that the the bounces haven't gone his way in the last couple of weeks, I'm not worried about Geno Smith. I am worried about PJ Walker going against an under the radar feisty Seattle defense. This is a fun, physical, confident team. I'm not not ready to give the Seattle defense a nickname like their predecessors just yet, but you already had some talent here. You add a really impressive rookie in Devin Witherspoon to the mix. That already goes along with a guy like Reek Woolen, who was a rookie of the year candidate. The safety duo is what I'm watching in this game. Quandre Diggs and Jamal Adams. Just havoc causing safeties. A lot of fun to watch this season. And I think they're well-equipped to confuse the hell out of P.J. Walker. Seattle plays zone defense the second most often in the NFL so far this season. This seems like a prime opportunity to drop guys into zones, try to bait and confuse a young, inexperienced quarterback. Not even, I'm sorry, PJ, you're 28. You're not that young. An inexperienced quarterback, young in the eyes of the league, at least. I think you can get some favorable looks, some looks that are going to throw him off kilter. And if a guy like Frank Clark can bolster the pass rush, all the better for the Seahawks. Quandre Diggs has 15 interceptions since joining the Seahawks in 2020. I would be shocked if Seattle doesn't come out of this game with at least one pick. Quandre only one on the season so far, but I think there's going to be balls available for Seattle to take advantage of. That is what I'm watching. PJ Walker with a big opportunity once again to uh, show how far he's come since Deshaun Watson's injury started this whole storyline in the first place. Injury situation. It is a long one. Both of these teams' injury lists look like CVS receipts. Just absolutely crazy. But it it does sound like it's trending in the right direction. And for the most part, Amari Cooper, Kareem Hunt, David Njoku, all trending like they're going to play for Cleveland. Left tackle Jedrick Wills didn't practice Thursday. That is of note. On Seattle's side of this, DK Metcalf upgrades to full, so it looks like he's going to play after missing his first game of his career last week against Arizona. Rookie running back Zach Charbonnet looks like he's going to play. But just as you're starting to feel good about all that, Tyler Lockett, Bobby Wagner, Kenny Walker, all not practicing as of Thursday night. So whether you're a Seahawks fan, Browns fan, fantasy football player, Keep an eye on this game because there's literally like 30 guys on the combined injury reports. We'll see how it all shakes out as we move along into the weekend. But whoever can get the most guys possible off that injury list might be the best served in the long run. One last thing, and that's the number to know. The Cleveland Browns are one of just three teams in the NFL this season with a turnover in every single game. They've actually committed two turnovers in five of the six. That's incredible that they're four and two with turnover numbers like that. Feels like a pertinent stat with a backup quarterback going to one of the rowdiest buildings in the NFL to try to get a win. Should be a good one. Cleveland at Seattle. With that, we are at the tail end of another preview show. You know what time it is. No bye weeks in week eight of the NFL season. So there's actually 11 more matchups to get to. Don't you worry. We're going to get you ready for the weekend. We're going to get you through all 11 matchups with something informative, something fun about all 11 remaining games on the docket. We're going to do it as succinctly as possible. We call it the hurry up offense. My wonderful producers are going to put three and a half minutes on the clock, and I'm going to tear ass through the rest of these 11 games and get you on with your weekend. 
So with that, we will get the clock started now with the Jets at the Giants. I don't think that's how they work. They both play at MetLife Stadium. I don't know who's road and who's home. I don't care. Just as the Jets are stealing the spotlight, Giants suddenly not looking terrible. You, you can't call this a quarterback controversy because Daniel Jones makes $40 million a year. But at the very least, Terod Taylor's giving the Giants something. I would not rush Daniel Jones back until he is truly healthy. I do think the Jets are a better overall team, though. I'll take the Jets to win the quote-unquote home road game, whatever it is. Jaguars at Steelers. Some Steeler fans are mad that Trevor Lawrence referred to the terrible towels as the little yellow towels. Newsflash, guys. That's what they are. Very cool. Love the tradition. They're little yellow towels. I don't know if the Jacksonville offense breaks out on the road against a nice Steelers defense. I do think the Jags are a better overall team. Good luck to the, you know, if the, even if there's a ton of little towels waving around in Pittsburgh on Sunday, I'll take the Jags. Vikings at Packers. Vikings fans, savor this. Not only have you climbed back into the mix, you are going to Lambeau Field and you have the better quarterback in this matchup. How many times have you said that? No, I'm not panicking about Jordan Love. I think I think the hand-wringing is a little overblown. I'm not... I'm not writing him off, but you can't deny Green Bay is having some growing pains, as you might expect. If Kirk Cousins plays like he did last week or like he's played for most of the season, I like the Vikings at Lambeau Field. Clawing back to 500, I love it. Falcons at Titans, don't have to spend a lot of time on this. Will Levis looks like he's going to get the start, barely played in the preseason, let alone the regular season. The second round pick rookie out of Kentucky. I can't do it. I can't pick him against a nice Falcons defense, an underrated Falcons defense. And Desmond Ritter, if he can stop turning the ball over, is playing pretty good football. I like the Falcons. Patriots at Dolphins. Bill Belichick is 9-14 and 14 in Miami as the Pats head coach. Even some of his great teams have struggled in Miami. This is not one of his great teams. And on top of that, Jalen Ramsey is reportedly returning to the lineup. He tore his meniscus in August. He's going to play in October. That is an incredible story. I don't care what the Pats did against the Bills. It's Dolphins big, big in Miami. Saints at Colts. Saints on paper should be good enough to win this game. Everything about the Saints suggests they should be better than they are, and they're not. I do not trust them on the road in Indy. Give me Gardner Minshew in the win. Texans at Panthers. Top pick bowl. Obviously, C.J. Stroud deserves the hype. But Bryce Young was drafted number one overall for a reason. The Panthers had a week off. They changed their play caller. Stuff like this happens in the NFL. I don't have the guts to pick the Panthers to win, but with those changes in the week off, Bryce Young going to show out. Panthers going to play well, maybe in a loss, though. Chiefs at Broncos. I hesitated a little bit when I heard there's snow in the forecast in Denver, but only slightly. We just watched this game two weeks ago. Broncos didn't come close to looking competitive, and now the Chiefs look like they've found their stride a bit on offense. I got the Chiefs easy. Ravens at Cardinals. Ravens. Beware, do not eat the cheese. The whole league loves you. Lamar's an MVP. Everyone wants to hire your coordinators, but the Cardinals are feisty. We know they're feisty. 9.5 points is a huge spread. I don't like the Cardinals to win, but maybe they cover. Bears at Chargers. It's fun to talk about Tyson Bajan. I'm rooting for the guy. It would be so Chargers to lose to an undrafted rookie on the road. Oh man, I'm way, they buzzed me. I don't care. Let's finish this up. It would be so Chargers to lose this game. But this is still the NFL, and their backs are against the wall. It gets really, really ugly if the Chargers can't win this game. That's why I think they will beat Tyson Bagent. I don't trust them, but I think they'll find a way to avoid that catastrophe. Finishing it up, Raiders at Lions. 
maybe games rarely go the way we think in the NFL, but I think this one will go the way I think, which is to say Detroit will be pissed off. The Raiders, even if they have Jimmy Garoppolo, I just don't think they're as good of a team. I think Detroit wins comfortably Monday night in Detroit. I usually get in at the buzzer. I went way over. I don't care. There are no bye weeks. There are no bye weeks. I got used to having fewer games. We'll do better next week with fewer matchups. That was the hurry up. That was the show. I hope you enjoy the weekend. It's going to be a fun one. Go find us on Spotify. Go find us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Come find me Monday morning. We'll rehash all the madness as we always do. I will see y'all then. Catch you next time.